0: all that i can hope is you take me with you when you go i guess i should have known i can't leave with you when you go now cow island is awfully quiet with your
1: And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your welcome to the final regular episode of the Panjoy Podcast.
2: Tis indeed, we are here at the end, and in the spirit of the occasion, pun not intended. I guess it's not really a spirit. It's not a spirit. Uh, I have to drink some Coors Banquets while we see this thing out.
1: Absolutely. Uh, For those of you who maybe didn't catch the announcements or are catching up with the show Uh, ex post facto months or years down the road this is the final episode of the panjoy podcast this is the last weekly release this is the last time that we're releasing an episode because we have to um (laughs) there's always the chance we might come back down the road and tell a specific story or do something here and there but for all intents and purposes you can consider this episode 52 the end of our journey of telling you the story, our story of Panjway and the stories that we've collected of Panjway.
2: Yeah. So Curtis and I have always knew that this would have an end date. Um, we just didn't know when and where. For us, it was always about telling the story. It's like when we got to a point where we felt like we told the story to the best of our ability, then we knew that we were gonna, you know, box it up and put it on a shelf. And over the past few episodes and the past couple of months, like we realized, like we we feel like. The story is pretty well encapsulated obviously it's impossible to get everybody's story in there but we've done uh thankfully through the engagement with you all the community around this thing we've been able to cover a widespread of people uh time periods different armies and so we're feeling pretty confident that the story of pandway has been told uh the best way we know how so you know that was that was one factor into the decision as well
1: and and the other thing is Uh, And we've we've hit on this a lot of times on the show, and I know it's going to offend some of you because your time in Panjway was the the, this big moment in your life, and you do you relive it all the time, and it's really important to you. Um, But we really feel that it's very it's not healthy to dwell Mm. and you know focus and speak on this one tiny moment of our lives indefinitely. Like I couldn't imagine being a healthy functioning person. And continuing to just drone on and on and on about Panjway forever, I would rather tell the story, do it in an eighteen-month window, put fifty interviews on the books, and like Luke said, put it on a shelf. Maybe come back to it later. But you know, this idea of you know doing this indefinitely, on and on and on. I know it's not good for my mental health. Um, I know it's not good for Luke's mental health. Uh, and I would just encourage all of you to, when you, when you get to this point of the podcast or at any point, just, just take a break. It's yeah. not, it's not your entire life. Start looking forward. Start looking at the next thing in your life.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's something that we've driven home a lot over the course of creating the podcast. And I feel like, um, with the, the trajectory of the podcast has kind of aligned itself well with my own personal journey of reconnecting with this particular side of myself. So for me, it's been a point of reconnection and a, and a almost a self-discovery in some ways. But also, yes, I'm glad to be done talking about it because, you know, it's, you know, as veterans, especially those of us who didn't serve, you know, 20 something years in some kind of special operations, you know, or whatever, of course, that's your identity. If you just done your four years and you got your two deployments in and you got out, it shouldn't be the only thing that. You know that you talk about, harp on about. It shouldn't be the only facet of your identity. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we're stopping. Because it's not the only thing that makes us
1: who we are. Uh, but we are
2: stopping at a high point.
1: Yes. And uh, that's, that's actually a question that we've gotten a few times from people about why are we stopping? Um, is it because you're not getting enough traction? Is it because you're not you know, getting the guests or the views? Guys. Let me tell you how incredible you have been as a community. Um, you know, Luke actually currently works professionally in the podcast space—not forever, but he does right now. Um, and you know, I'll let him speak to that a little bit as well. But the the top fifty percent of podcasts—you are a top fifty percent podcaster if you get twenty-eight downloads of a new episode in its first week. Mm-hmm. Last week's episode with General uh, Abrams got over 800 views downloads in its first week, which makes it a top 5% podcast by those metrics. You guys have blown it out of the water with your support. By the time this airs, we'll be approaching 80,000 downloads, over 50,000 YouTube views, and over 20,000 Facebook views. We have been on Fox News, NBC News, you know, the Hazard Ground podcast. We're on another podcast that's coming out next year that you'll find out more about later. Um, you know, we have definitely not failed to reach a level of success that, is, that we're disappointed with or something like that. We are beyond happy with what the podcast has achieved, which makes it even more important for us to leave because we feel like it's better to leave when the podcast is doing well, when it's a good product that we're proud of then to let it just go on for six months and then wither away into nothing as it is right now i've been getting lazier and lazier with my editing so <laughs> you know it's it's definitely best um to leave on a high note you got and it, this has only been possible because of what you guys have put into it your your donations your time you know sharing our posts encouraging your friends to listen to it reaching out to us and telling us things or sharing your pictures with us helping us grow the social media community that's it's 100% on you guys. There's nothing special about Luke and I that has made this podcast successful. It has nothing to do with us. It has 100% to do with you.
2: Yeah, it's been, um, it's been humbling in a lot of ways to see how, how many people are like invested in this story. And I think it speaks to the power of, of a place, a small little place in Afghanistan, in that it's significantly larger and it's reached more ears, if you will, than Curtis and I ever anticipated when we started out. We thought maybe our immediate bubble of guys and maybe some family members and friends would be interested. But to to get, you know, literally tens of thousands of interactions with it and to get, you know, a few thousand people really interested in uh the story itself is kinda of fascinating. I didn't expect that. And I see it speaks to the power of the experience of Panjway. Like Panjwai is an odd place and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but it has this, this unique grip on the people that go there. I mean guys who spent deployments elsewhere uh like myself i went to iraq i never think about iraq like i do pandway it's just a totally different world uh and so that that community that surrounds it the brief tenure time especially that american forces are there it's pretty strong and prevalent Um, and that's been that's been demonstrated to us over the course of making this thing so that's been cool to see
1: yeah absolutely and uh you know, that's, that's actually a pretty great transition because one thing we really wanted to do with this episode is close the loop, so to speak. You know, in episode one, we introduced you to Panjway, if you weren't already familiar. We, we set out the landscape and some of the history and some of the military history and our personal histories, how we got there, what was Spurwingar like, who was Bravo Company 164, um, you know, what was it like to walk in Panjway, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we had questions then that we didn't have the answers to. Mm. Um, And then there were also questions, you know, there were were answers that we learned later in the podcast that we didn't even know we were asking the questions for. (laughs) Um, So we wanted to take a a little bit of this episode to kind of close the loop on Panjway, you know, answer some of those unanswered questions. Uh, I know, you know, Luke, when you started this with me, what was one of the big questions that you had?
2: I think the one of the big questions, like high level, you know, bird's eye questions that I had is how did Panjwa fit into the scheme of not just the immediate area, but Kandahar and Afghanistan as a whole. Um, and that's certainly something that's been answered in a, in a few different ways from multiple angles. Um, you know, it's, it's, we always hear this line. It's the birthplace of the Taliban. It's the homeland of the Taliban. But I don't think I really understood the significance of that in terms of the kind of politic of Afghanistan as a whole until we started talking to some of the higher-ranked people uh, that we've interacted with because they were able to shed some light on, like, why Panjway was always a hot ticket because it was such a, a crucial part of their, their identity as, a, mm-hmm. in, as an organization and as an entity. So that's been pretty cool to, to get the peek behind the curtain on some of that.
1: And, you know, and we, we had to speak to some really powerful guests to that exact topic. You know, probably the first guest we got a real good behind-the-scenes glance was when we talked to Major Persons, mm-hmm. um, who was our company commander – I'm sorry, our pl- <laughs> platoon leader in 2012 and ultimately became a major in the, the SFAB. Um, Security Force Assistance Brigade, and he went back to Panjway as a major and got a little bit more behind the scenes as to the local politics and to understand how there's, you know, the power structures there. I'm definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. It's fascinating. And then we started talking to people like, um, you know, Rusty Bradley, who was in and out of Panjway, you know, what is it, seven times, six times? Something crazy like that. Um, Over the course of his career. You know, he's always back there. And so he had these relationships, and he understood. And then, you know, Colonel Rutherford, General Abrams. We start to get this big picture of essentially the fact that, you know, Panjway is a family-dominated landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a few families, and they run the whole thing. Um, And if you look at Kandahar as a whole, Kandahar is brutally important to the Taliban's overall strategy. Um, And most people would say, well, then Kandahar City... Is, is their prize, jewel. And, and that's, it's, it's a prize for them, but it's not their heart. Their heart is in Panjwai Zari. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, Mohammed Omar was born in Zari. You know, his, his first wife is from the village of Sperwan. Um, you know, the, the diamond's back, Zangabad Gar, is where he showed off um, the cloaks um, that they took from Kandahar City. You know, it's They launched their campaign at the the Taliban out of Panjway, you know, to seize Kandahar City. It's super important to them. Um, And not just as a, you know, motions, you know, their rat lines come across the Registan Desert, across Mm -hmm. the Dowry Route, and into the Horn of Panjway. That is how they get their food, supplies, medicine, weapons, ammunition.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's it's strategically important, and it had... Uh, a lot of spiritual and and emotional importance for them, so you know it speaks to the level of determination that they held onto to that ground with because you know we we were in Panjway as a in terms of like you know Western forces were in Panjway for a long period of time, and the fight was always there, always mm-hmm. intense um from mm-hmm. the day from two thousand one and two when Americans first pushed into the area and then from 2006 on after the canadians and usf uh, sf forces pushed in there from 06 to 14 it was it was a hotly contested piece of land and that speaks to their determination to hold the line on that because it would have been easy for them to bend the knee and, uh, and give way after they took a hammering down there for 7 years 6 yeah. years and they definitely took a hammering for 6 years
1: oh yeah um you know, and kind of looking back even before when we got to Panjway, you know, we had some questions about the history of the landscape. Um, we talked about the irrigation canals and the dams and all, you know, this, the modern infrastructure that's there. I mean, there are modern wells, there are modern canals. Like the, the Dower route and the Argandab are definitely used to irrigate Zari and Panjway. And we were wondering, you know, when did that go in? And we found out it came in, in in the 1950s. So it was mostly U- United States and UN resources that built a lot of these modern um, irrigation, uh, you know, well, not equipment, systems. but systems. Yeah. There you go. Um, we also, like we said, you know, Mullah Omar was born in Zari. His wife is from Sparewan. Um, you know, we never got a firm answer about the Sparawan-Gar Hill itself. Um, but based on some other research into similar mounds in the area, you know, reading a little bit about what the Russians did there and knowing what we know about the schoolhouse, our best guess is that the mound dates back to the Byzantine era, Alexander the Great, uh, probably two 3,000 years old. Uh, it may have been built onto a little bit by the Russians, but the mound itself um, dates back to then. Uh, the plateau on which the schoolhouse is built, uh, definitely back to the Russians, and then um, the schoolhouse was built in the early '90s. So Spur is actually this you know conglomeration of, of multiple eras, and I'm sure it was used by the British at some point too. I can't rule that out. Mm, yeah, um, but you know it's a kind of an assemblage of different eras of combat that we added to as well. I mean, we changed what it looked like. We added things to it. Um. But that's the best guess is that you know we originally thought that it had been built by the Russians, and I don't believe that that's the case anymore
2: hmm, yeah, we do know that that we were sleeping next to a thousand pound JDAM lodged in a hill that didn't go off
1: <laughs> yeah yep yeah. we we learned that from uh from Zach Harrison, who uh actually no, we learned it from tom from mm. Thomas Young told us about that yeah, um, so everyone who served on spurlingar you were literally Living next to a ticking time bomb. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have killed you. That and that's probably unless you were on top of the hill, then it might have killed you. But yeah. if you were like in the schoolhouse, it just would have been a horrible day. You would have yeah. been buried under half the mountain, your eardrums <laughs> would have been blown out, and you'd have been like, What just happened?
2: Oh man. That's too good. And that was from before two thousand six, I think.
1: It was. Um I think Tom said it, it predated Medusa. Yeah. Which so like is
2: O three or something like that. They made a, a push to do that. That's another thing that was kind of interesting about
1: the history of Panjway 2 is
2: it's it's kind of murky in a lot of ways. Like so many units came in and out of there, and like it wasn't like you know the Coringal or something where dudes came and they spent fifteen months and they were there and they they on this one firebase for fifteen months. It was a constant flux and ebb and flow of units. So to to really recreate the history has been kind of difficult in that regard because there's so many people that came through that area. Um, yeah, and like we said earlier, if it was if they were there for 10 days or if they were there for 10 months, it impacted them.
1: And in general, I mean, the, where it gets real hard is before like 2005. That's when you're like, you, ha- you had SF that was in and out of there. You had other countries, SF that was in and out of there. We had conventional forces in and out. The Marines were in Pandway at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, they're, they're, but they're constantly moving. And when the Canadians started rotating in, um, they would rotate around and they didn't stay in one place for anything more than maybe a week or two, you know, hang out at the district center or maybe at Massamgar. Um, mm-hmm. and it's also important to mention that when we talk to the Canadians and we say Panjway for them, it's Zari too. Um, yeah. because Zari was part of Panjway up until like 2008. Uh, when they formally split the district and created Zari out of parts of Panjoy and Maiwand. Um, so it gets even murkier when you're looking into the history of Panjoy because some people are saying Pandway and they mean Zari. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these Canadian units rotating around. It's not until 2006 that you can start to really tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. There were a lot of SFODAs that went in and got fucked up in Panjway before 2006, and uh, we didn't get to tell those stories, and I wish we could have would have had the time, Mm -hmm. Um, because you know there was a lot of sacrifice and lives lost in Panjway way before Medusa. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately for us amateur historians, (laughs) uh, you know it kind of starts with Medusa with the Canadians, but even while the Canadians held Panjway, you know you had American forces kind of poking their nose in there because they were bored essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, That's basically our explanation for why the 101st went into Pandway. They were poor. They had nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you had, and even the Canadians, they did different things, whether it was a mechanized unit or um, a French Canadian unit or Princess Patricia Light Infantry unit. You know, they all operated a little bit differently. Uh, For example, the JTF-2, their Delta Force. You know, they basically owned the area around Zangabad and wouldn't let anybody over there. Mm. So for years, everyone thought that nobody was in Zangabad. That's why the 101st guys thought they were the first ones ever there. <laughs> yeah, because JTF2 just put a circle around it and said no one is allowed to go in here except for us.
3: Mm.
1: <laughs> you know, that's not something. I mean, we learned that by accident. Um, so, yeah, absolutely a murky military history. Um, you know, the Canadians fought super hard. But they all fought differently, and they did six months deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we spoke with a, a Canadian infantryman, uh, Princess Patricia Light Infantry, uh, and he said it was very frustrating to him to hear us talk about learning these lessons when they had learned it, you know, two years earlier. Mm-hmm. But the lessons didn't pass down because of this short-term troop turnover and the arrogance that is kind of inherent in troops when they take over.
2: I mean, I feel like it just comes to the territory of being, you know, the infantry and being, uh, that kind of gung ho, uh, you know, put my dick on the table and let everybody else, uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> that's fine. Who cares? It's the last episode. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, um, it speaks to that attitude of like, you know, I'm going to put my dick on the table and everybody's going to look at it. And this is how it's going to be. Uh, I feel like that, that, this continuity across all those units is uh, its interesting to see because the Panjoi lessons were hard. They were hardly learned. Um, and I feel like if there's any leaders that listen to this thing, it's like a little bit of humility goes a long way. Um, I mean, humility can go a long way towards protecting your guys and protecting their lives and well-being. So keeping an open ear. And I feel like, I mean, personally, I went into it just – I don't know, completely, I was, I was an open book in a lot of ways, but I was also so focused on getting out of the military that I didn't even really want to think about having to apply myself to it. it as much more of like a, okay, I'm going to do my job and knock it out and get done, you know.
1: Well, but and I the felt- thing is, you know, there's, there's a couple different kinds of units. I, I, I felt as us as a very young unit, we were eager to learn from the unit mm-hmm. before us. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the unit before us wasn't very eager to teach us yeah um yeah. they were they were ready to go home and they'd stopped patrolling for quite a while and this isn't we're not talking shit guys we're not we're not saying you didn't do your job you did your job um but you, your your leaders kind of quit on you um you know and that's not your fault mm. um but you know we didn't get much of a handoff the unit wasn't patrolling much you know beyond the I- eyesight of spare gar. And so, what we thought was a good handover turned out not to be, because mm. you know, just the information didn't get handed down. Um, and if you track back, so the Canadians that had Spurwangar last handed it off to you know one five, or I think it was five one Cav, who got switched out midway through their deployment with two battalions on 2 three two one Cav, and or three two one infantry and one five infantry. Uh, and it happened very fast and very close to the end of their deployments. Like there was no kind of coherent changeover because they were just in constant disarray. And again, mm. it's not your fault, guys. Um, it's just the way that it happened. It just is what it is. And mm. as a result of that, a lot of lessons learned got lost. Mm. Um, so by the time we took over, you know, lessons that the Canadians had spent six years learning, you know, we we didn't get the benefit of that, which was unfortunate. Mm.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I, I feel like. That that stems from the kind of fractured nature of units coming and going. Because another thing is, like a lot of units spent a lot less time there. You know, yes, they were they were there for three, or four months, and either they were made combat ineffective, or their deployments were ending, or just whatever multitude of reasons that kind of uh, catapulted them towards wrapping things up. Um, so yeah, I guess we could kind of
1: shrink the the view
2: down a little bit and start thinking about a little bit more of our experience then.
1: So, I mean, we, we got there, um, like I said, very young unit. Uh, I think that that kind of worked to our advantage to mm-hmm. not know what we were experiencing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that kind of came up with several of our guests, uh, mm-hmm. particularly Burner, uh, Alex Burner, and Ronnie Morgan, who said, yeah, it was real bad. And we didn't tell you guys it was real bad because we didn't want like, to, to mess with your head. Yeah. Because um, I think a lot of us were like, hey, this is combat. This is normal. Mm. Um, and it wasn't normal. Um,
2: yeah, that was, a, that was a, a really interesting revelation for me um, because I had always viewed it as just another combat, your typical infantry deployment. Um, and it, it, I didn't quite understand the unique nature in terms of the intensity and the violence of that deployment until we started talking to other people through the podcast, you know, until we had other, other deployments to frame it by. And I, I think one of the things that I think about a lot was when I was, um, in basic training and I had you know, a drill sergeant who had been to Iraq multiple times at that point. And he, um, he always said like, you know, it was real quiet. It'll be quiet for three or four months. And then there's one day, where just they turn it on and it's a shit show for an entire day. And so that was uh, here lately. I've been thinking about that little anecdote and I was like, man, that wasn't the case for us. Like it was real quiet for a week <laughs> and then there'd be that one day. But I think the difference being is like the, the the violence was evenly spread with the occasional bump in intensity and, and, uh, and how violent it was. But it was pretty much the same across the entire nine months. Like you knew what to expect when, when fighting season really kicked in, you knew what to expect. Um, and I didn't, I just didn't understand that that wasn't normal for GWAT. Um, I didn't understand that the fighting typically ebbed and flowed.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I think grind is, is a really good way to describe the, if you had used one word to describe combat in Panjway, yeah. it was a grind um you know and we're like i said we're not taking away from anybody else's experiences in any parts of the country we know the corn was tough we know that helmand was a shit show you know we know that even in the mountains like ur is gone there's a lot of horrible fighting like there there was a lot of bad places in afghanistan
3: mm-hmm.
1: um but they're all a little bit different you know yeah. mountain fighting was extremely physically demanding uh and the gunfights came rarer, but when they came they were more intense. You were engaged from longer distances. It was harder to to, to shoot back with your M four when they're engaging with a dishka at two thousand meters. Mm-hmm. Um you know and but they also got really brutally close. I mean guys got you know snagged and kidnapped in the in, in the mountains. Um you know, that that kind of stuff happened. Uh for us, you know, it was very like you said, very consistent. You had, you know, the IED threat, which forced your maneuvers into single file lines. You avoided the roads whenever possible. You're breaking down walls. You're moving in great rows, And you're getting engaged within 100 to 200 meters every time, Mm -hmm. up to, like, the closest was, like, 10. Yeah, you're talking 50 feet away. You know, you're seeing guys. And Kyle's talking about seeing a guy put a PKM on the wall right in front of his face. (laughs) You know, like, this shit happened at very close ranges, grenade range, legit grenade range. And we're not talking about Rangers hitting an objective and there being guys at grenade range because the Rangers put themselves in grenade range. They put mm-hmm. them, they were able to get within grenade range of us without our ISR overhead aircraft seeing them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that was definitely part of the unique nature of the fight there is how close it was. And that's something that a lot of Afghan veterans uh, that, that served uh, in other places in the country when I hear interviews or whatever, they always talk about the distance. And it's it's always been a weird thing for me to hear guys talk about, yeah, we would get hit from six or seven hundred meters out because they knew the effective range to the M4. And I'm like, man, like we got hit from fifty feet. We get hit from, you know, five feet sometimes. Um, you know, it was you know, there's multiple occasions where it was super, super close. Uh and then there was never outside of two hundred meters. You know, it was not always within two hundred meters. So it was just kind of weird to to know that that area is unique in that regard and that the fighting is is different. And like we said, it's it's more of a grind. I feel like for the mountain boys, the typical thing would be lulls and then a really bad day where they're fighting like 25 guys, you know? And for us, it was that grind and that we didn't fight huge numbers of dudes, but it was always really close and it was constant. So like, I, I remember asking uh, Morgan, so what's worse? Like fighting twenty five guys from across the mountain valley or fighting two dudes from thirty feet away. It's like, oh, I don't know which one's worse, but I can tell you which one's scarier. <laughs> <laughs> and that little anecdote stuck with me too, that or that line has. So yeah, I mean it was it was a wild, wild time.
1: <laughs> and, and and I think if you if you take the IEDs out the equation, those two situations are kind of a wash, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, like, on one hand, you're getting shot at a lot, but it's short-lived. You have air air support on short tether. Mm-hmm. You know, we never really were in a whole lot of danger um, in gunfights. We did lose, you know, our, our two, you know, Sergeant Swindle and uh, Corporal Luxmore. They were lost to small arms fire. So, obviously, it was very dangerous. And Brazos. Um, and Brazos with small arms fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Even still, you know, if you asked me to pick between the two, I wouldn't I honestly wouldn't make a decision. They're just like, just send me where you're gonna send me. Yeah. The same. IEDs changed the game. Uh, yeah, because of the just the unique geography and topography of Panjway, you can't escape them. Yeah. The There's sheer proliferation you can do about it.
2: of IEDs Everywhere. dominated everything. Like I mean it it you know, I feel like uh, in the mountains again. You know, I don't know. I never deployed to the mountains, but I feel like for them it was like, when's the big one going to kick off? Like the big ID, the mm-hmm. the four hundred pounder that's going to take out a Humvee. And for us, it was just like, how many, how many ten pound, how many four hundred, uh, ten pound IEDs are scattered between here and that next village? And so it was just, it was, they would definitely were the the solidification of our fight for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's it's weird to explain. Um and I'm glad that mo- many of our guests reaffirm this that they weren't actually trying to kill us
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh and that it's a it's a real mind fuck mm-hmm. when your enemy is not actually trying to kill you. if they kill you they're they're overjoyed great, but that's not their goal mm-hmm. their goal is to to affect your movement to keep you away from places they don't want you to go or to end your patrol early or to demoralize you. And if they kill you, it's like a bonus. But if they really wanted to kill us, all they had to do was double the size of all those charges. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And that was the thing is like they all these small charges scatter over the place. And if you, if you blow a dude's foot off, then you've dealt a blow to your enemy. You know, you've completely mind fucked your enemy. If they know that when they take a step, they could lose a part of their body. Uh, at best. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, they, they they were the masters of using that
1: sneaky little
2: device known as the IED.
1: And, and also, kind of what it's like to pull up a little bit, you know, when we talked to Avery about flying the Kiowa over panjway at that time, you know, we we had a very micro um, perception of what was going on. We went out on our, our patrols and we saw what we saw and we knew what happened to other platoons on the base. But outside of that, we only kind of got a periphery. Like, what was Alpha 123 up to? It was Bravo 123 up to all that stuff? But when we talked to Aver, he's like, no, man. He's like, everybody was in it every day. Yeah. You know, he's like, he's bouncing from firefight to firefight to firefight to firefight um, or to IED hit or whatever. Like, the idea that he was up in the air, and he said he never saw a firefight to completion.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was getting pulled somewhere else. Like, I mean, across the entire district, especially in the Horn, it was just, it's like the, kin- well, the kinetic, to use the military terminology, the kinetic nature of it was relentless, man. And so, when you got, you know, multiple companies out there, it was something every day, multiple times a day. Uh, I don't know.
1: Spicy. Very. And, and, you know, it's a good way to talk about what one, two, three was up to on the deployment, because we talked about spurwangar quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know and what we did with Spear One Gone, We've had some op- opportunities to talk about what was going on, say Zangabad and um, you know Mushon in particular, Talakan, Cop Lion. Uh, you know, and essentially, you know, talking to Colonel Rutherford and talking to Brent Buffington got a really good idea that basically Alpha One Two Three just got fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if I had to pick who had the worst deployment by far, it goes to Alpha One Two Three. at caught Mushon. Mm. They had no standoff. They had a shitty base. They lived like, you know, we expected to live, Mm -hmm. you know, on cots and GP mediums with barely working AC and, um, no standoff from the enemy. They were getting hit right outside their wire. Horrendous attrition. Um, you know, they lost two guys. They lost to and they lost Navarro and they had a couple double and triple amputees. I mean, they had a rough, rough deployment. Yeah. Um, you know, Charlie123 at Zangabad had it a little bit easier. Um, and I don't think that's because, it's not, obviously, again, it's not your fault, guys. And, and I know you got fucked up because we got fucked up with you one day. Um, when you had your massive mass casualty on August 23rd, you know, we, we had a guy lose his leg trying to get to you. So we know you had a hard, hard deployment. We're not saying that. Mm. Um, but I feel like the fight at Spurringar and Mushan kind of drew fighters away from Zangabad. Mm. Um, and also the, the at Bell and bai drew some people away. So, um, Charlie had it a little bit easier. Uh, and then you had Bravo down at Talacan had a good fight. Um, but Talacan had a lot of open ground around it. Um, mm. it wasn't quite as in the great Rose as Mushan was. Um, and then Cop Line, I'm not sure who was down there. Um, and then you had Soja and Kenjukak too. You know, mm-hmm. we can't forget about Soja and Kenjukak. Soja had elements of, I think, 520. Um, and uh, oh, was it 520 and 117? we in and out of Soja, um, and they basically just ran; they they just filled in gaps throughout Pandway wherever it was needed. Because Soja itself was was kind of a large base that wasn't really next to anything.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then Kenjakak, which is where our second platoon of infantrymen were, and our our um Charlie Company of tankers from 12, 164 was at. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they had a rough deployment too. I mean. It wasn't as kinetic, um, you know, not as many firefights, but they did, you know, they had one of our, one of our guys, one of our infantrymen stepped on an ID and lost his leg, Cottrell. Um, you know, they had some pretty brutal fights as well and they lived in shitty housing. Like, you know, they did a Mushan and stuff. So like, uh, one, one thing that is a regret of mine is that, you know, just by nature of not enough time, we didn't get to tell all these stories. mm mm-hmm. Um, but nobody who served with one, two, three and Pandway should come away from their service feeling anything else than like you did a fucking monumental task in one of the, in the most dangerous district of the country in 2012.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it was, it was a, um, it was a significant period of time, you know, um, the, the longevity too, of the unit as well. Like the Pandway chewed units up and spit them out. And the fact that all of the units were able to stay at their posting for a nine month deployment. Um, it was kind of miraculous in a lot of ways. Like, Cause it wasn't uncommon for different units to get plussed up or to get filtrated out. And I know we experienced a lot of turnover in terms of our, our own guys. And I'm sure other units did that as well. But the fact that, you know, the companies were able to hold their own across that entire district and to be spread thin. This is an area that traditionally would have a brigade in there. And we have one battalion. Right. trying to handle all this. That's the reason we ended up there to begin with because they needed some
1: some extra hands on deck. Well, and it's it's interesting you mentioned that because the, the, the battalion before us or the units on Sparangard did get switched out mid-tour because they were declared combat ineffective because they just got they got hit so many times. Yeah. You know, so they didn't do their full year deployment in any one place. We barely did our 9 months. Um You know, there was talk of us being swapped out towards the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if the things that had, if we'd had a year deployment, I'm almost sure that we probably would have been swapped out. Mm. Um, You know, if October 4th had happened in July, we might have been swapped out. Mm. Uh, I know General Abrams wanted to swap us out. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm glad that they didn't. Me too. Yeah. Um, Now. uh, now, at the time, I <laughs> at was hoping the time, for it. I was
2: like, yes, let's leave. Fuck.
1: <laughs> right. But being able to see that job to our completion is a sense of pride for me. And again, this doesn't take away from anybody that had to step away or had to had to take care of themselves along the course. But me, personally, I am exceptionally proud of the fact that I was on the line from day one until the day we left Sparrow That is a sense of pride for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Same for me, man. And that's not something that I really... You know this is just the thanks to people who have come onto to the podcast as guests and also people that we've interacted with over the course of creating it is that was never never something for me before that I like found pride in or that i I was able to to you know stand on as a point of pride, but I feel like personally, having gone through this experience uh I can step away from it and be proud of. Of what we did there, and be proud of my time there, you know, and proud of myself. Something I never thought to be proud of. I don't know how self congratulatory that sounds, but this I am, you know, in a way. And I'm appreciative that I had the that I was able I was able to hold out, especially how close I was to getting out of the military. So as as I'm getting older and I'm moving through life, I'm glad that I'm glad we stayed. I'm glad that our unit was able to stay and fight and fight to the variant the last patrol was a fight.
1: So Yeah, and that's one thing, uh this this idea of being proud of your service that has come up a, quite a bit on the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Uh we mentioned it in the first two episodes. Um it's come up several times, particularly when Afghanistan was falling and people were struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and I I kind of wanted to take a moment to to kinda to shut down this pogue hating bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this idea that just because you were an infantryman or you were combat arms, that your contribution somehow matters more. Did you have it harder? Probably. You you probably had it, you probably had a harder deployment than some of the people you're talking shit to. That's probably true. That doesn't make you any better than them. It doesn't make their contribution to the fight any less valuable. And it doesn't mean that they should be any less proud of their Mm -hmm. contribution to the fight.
2: Yeah, and and ditto to other units that didn't see as much shit, you know? Like, war sucks, no matter how, where you're at and how intense it is or how kinetic it is. Like, war always sucks. So, whether you're delivering the fucking mail and running the risk of hitting a 500-pound IED that melts you into the concrete or if you're out there just grinding it out on Sparrowing Gar or Mushan or Lion or whatever, you know, you should be proud of what you did, man. And, like, nobody's devalidated and what they did because of the nature of their job. They chose to do the job, and then the job took them to an extreme place and put them in extreme situations. And a lot of people have done very, very well in those situations. it, It is a point of pride for everybody, no matter what background or what MOS you had or whatever.
1: And, you know, if you're the kind of person that has been living your life for the past 10 years talking shit about other people because they didn't do what you did, You need you need a self check. Yeah, yeah. You you need to reevaluate. Take the back window. Yeah, take your (laughs) take your ERB off the back window. You know, stop living in that moment. Like, you know, yes, you did something worthy of honor and worthy of recognition. um, But the minute you start flaunting it over other people who either didn't have the opportunity uh, or privilege to do it, that kind of makes you a piece of shit. Yeah, so
2: definitely. And the thing is, my my joke is that the more stickers in the back
1: the windshield, the the less shit they actually saw. <laughs> well, there's there's truth to that too. But there there are people that you know saw yeah. shit, and they just think it validates them. And I just yeah. it's it's not that it invalidates you. It's just that, um, like I said, yes, other people had it easier. Other people had a different deployment. Other people chose not to go down that road, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. The thing is that you're
2: uh, you're allowed to be more than that. You know, don't don't hold yourself back in that. The only thing you've ever done of significance was go to war, because there's bajillions of other things in life that you can apply yourself to and become even better for it. And because of right. your experiences in the military, so, you know you can be a better father or a better husband, or you can do perform well in your your chosen field, or you can go to school or get a you know become a tradesman or whatever whatever it is you choose to apply yourself to, like. Use the, I feel like for me, again, I can only speak from my experience, but the great benefit and the gift of this podcast has been learning to utilize that experience as a means by which to set myself up for something better down the road. Um, and that's not something that I did before. I never used my military experience as a means of making myself better. It was always just a, a shut closet in the back of my mind. Um so to learn to do that, it's been beneficial, and I think everybody else can pull from that too. Like use it as something to make yourself better, but don't let it be the only thing that you are, because you can be
1: more than that. We can all be better than that, you know. We can be better veterans. Be a better veteran. Uh, and if there's something I wish that we would have spent more time on, it would definitely have been that whole idea of being a better veteran. Yeah. Um, you know, because I mean, the veteran community has its plus and minuses, and I think we've seen the full spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'll be the first to admit I was super empowered by the veteran community's response to the fall of Afghanistan mm. to see guys helping get interpreters out and, you know, you know, going there and pulling people out or using their own money to charter planes and stuff like that. It was fucking cool, man. <laughs> it was the embodiment of selflessness and duty and sacrifice and honor. Um, and then you freaking contrast that with Tim Kennedy, you know, guys like that, <laughs> fucking straight up vet bros being fucking douches and fucking it up, mm-hmm. which they did. They went and they grabbed the wrong people and it's a whole other story, but it doesn't matter. The point is be better. And we were better. We were so good. We did such a great job. Um, and in the same token, it's been really cool to see vets volunteer and go help. Fight with Ukraine. Whatever the Mm. politics of that is, I don't care. If you're going there because you believe in it and you think that you can help innocent people and you're doing that for free, just go for it, man. That's that's so fucking cool. Mm. Way better than hosting a fucking self-righteous podcast about your experience (laughs) for 18 months. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, for
2: sure. That's actually been one of the challenges of this for for both of us, I know, is like overcoming that... uh, the unwillingness to self-promote, because <laughs> that, that is antithetical to my entire being, is to sit around and talk about the things that I did. But that being said, I feel like we did a pretty good job of highlighting the things that our guests did. Um, and we've had some awesome guests along the way.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and I wish we could go through each and every one of them and tell you what we liked about them. And we thought about doing that, but then we realized how long that would fucking take. Yeah. Um. But, you know, I, I do want to put you on a spot, Luke. What was what was your f- I want to say favorite. What, what interview meant the most to you? Um, I think our interview with Tom Evans. Okay.
2: Probably meant the most to me because, um, that was an experience that haunted me for a long time. Um, and talking to Tom, especially for such a long period of time, it was nice to, for one, reconnect with somebody who always had a strong connection with, especially when we were in the military. Like we were, we were, we just kind of clicked, you know, Um, to reconnect with him and then to hear the story of those couple of days from someone who got, you know, who got wounded was very, very beneficial for me. Um, it just, it helped me, it helped me heal, it helped me to close the door on that memory in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, that, that was one that really stuck out to me.
1: How about you? So I'm going to cheat and say two of them. And only because there's a link between them. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one is our first interview with Matt Kohler. Mm -hmm. Um, There there was a a few reasons why that one was particularly powerful for me. Um, One was that it was our first guest interview. Mm -hmm. So, like, it was an emotional ride, man. It was crazy. (laughs) It was, like, four hours of, like... Like, the pre-interview was, like, six hours. We were crying in the pre-interview. And... Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Matt, you know, he's, he was super brutally honest about his struggle with mental health and, you know, what that deployment did to him. Um, and then, you know, him putting you on the spot to talk about your <laughs> moment. Um, it was very, very powerful. But the thing that really stood out was when he talked about the day that Clark got hit. Hmm. Um, he was very I mean, he holds that in his heart so deep. And the reason I mentioned, too, is when Clark came up for his interview Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we got to hear Clark's side of it, which was super powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was really wild is when I was taking Clark back to the airport, uh, after he had done his interview and everything, mm-hmm. I let him listen to that section of Kohler's interview. It hadn't come out yet. Um, and it affected him so deeply hearing it from Kohler's point of view, because up to this point, he had kind of held it against Kohler a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um. Not he never said it, but he did. Um. And Kohler kind of knew it, and there was they were friends, but that tension hadn't that at hadn't been buried yet. Yeah. Um. It hadn't been addressed. Um. And so, so to hear Kohler talk about it and to hear how much it deeply affected Kohler and kind of mm-hmm. fucked him up, fucked up Clark. <laughs> and Clark <laughs> actually missed his flight in Seattle because he just he was not in a headspace where he could get back on an airplane. Mm. Um. And that led to Clark reaching out to Kohler and and them talking about it and kind of reaching that closure. But yeah, so I, for that reason, I think that was the most impactful for me. Mm. Um, but I that a, a couple other ones that stood out that I really enjoyed. Um, Matt, the civilian researcher, that was a really cool episode. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Rusty Bradley episodes, the Captain Kitching episode, Tom's episode. um, Ronnie Morgan's episode was really good. Really good. Um, Alex Berner's episode. Mm. Um, gosh. You know, Rutherford Abrams. Um, just had some really cool conversations with people. Um, yeah, and I feel like, you know, um, on the subject
2: of Clark and and Kohler, and they're kind of reconnecting and things like that, like, the amount of healing that's come out of this has been pretty astounding too, uh, for both for you and I, but for people that have come on, like there's guys that have come on who have told stories that they've not even said to their spouses because they're struggling with these things. And so definitely the most rewarding aspect of this is allowing for reconnections between people like Kohler and Clark and Hannah allow for some burying of hatchets and allow for, the beginning processes of healing um, around these memories that you know haunt some people and or carry a lot of weight with others, and so that's been very nice.
1: You know, and, and even y- you bring up a really good point about spouses reaching out. Um, you know, Alex Berner's spouse reached out and thanked us for having him tell his story because he hadn't told her that stuff. He hadn't talked about it. Hmm. Um, but then there was like this second order effect that I didn't plan for. I worried about it early on, but I just didn't, there's nothing I can do to plan for it, which was um, the survivor surviving family of those that were lost hearing these stories Um, over the course of the podcast. um, Allie Brazos, um, the family of Pinnock and Lily, the friends of Pinnock and Lily have reached out family and friends. Um, The Luxmore family, um, you know, I don't, I haven't heard from Chelsea, but I'm pretty sure she's, she's heard it as well. Um, you know, the DeMarsico family, the Navarro family, um, a lot of these families have reached out and thanked us for telling the stories about the days that their loved ones were killed because I guess just as a nature of the way it is, no one wants to sit down with a gold star mom and tell her that story in in detail you know they might get the broad strokes but you know particularly when Alex talked mm. about treating and evacuating uh, BJ that was really powerful um, the, the guilt that he held and still holds um, for that and how it affected him um, I know that they reached out to him to talk to him about it and I think that's just Like you said, the healing that that kind of started with people having these conversations. And I'm not going to take credit for that. I mean, um, you know, anybody could have made a podcast and had the same result. Again, like I said at the beginning, this isn't anything special about you or I. It's about the community and how willing they were to put their stuff, put themselves out there. Yeah,
2: that was a a nice, a pleasant surprise, too, is the willingness of people to come on and, and not just have a conversation and yak it up and talk about, you know, that great firefight that we had, but to get down to the nitty gritty and, and really tell some hard stories and and to relive some hard memories. But the determination and willingness that a lot of the guests uh, showed to do so was invigorating because it was, you know, it was, it was beautiful in a way to see people come and just be brutally honest and brutally human and to be open and exposed in in a public format. Um, And I think that that created the space for, a lot of folks to to reach out and start connecting you know because they realized oh I can do that right. it's okay for me to to let this kind of be shown to the world for a little bit
1: you know when you look across the 52 episodes how many actual war stories came out of those episodes mm-hmm. not not honestly not even that many mm-hmm. you know people were exceptionally willing to talk about the experience how it felt what it looked like what it smelled like you know we got some wonderful storytelling um you know from you know Rusty Bradley and god episode 2 of Rusty Bradley was just like reading the book but better cuz he was telling it <laughs> um you know but for the most part people were very invested in telling what it meant to them you know how it means to them going forward you know people's talking about their struggle with mental health and you know that's pretty wild cuz that's what we wanted you know, mm-hmm. We didn't want to just tell war stories. We wanted something meaningful. We wanted to know what it meant to be a human being in that war zone. And we got that. Yeah, for sure. And even, um,
2: like I said, I think the the brutal honesty, it comes back to that. People were willing to be honest about it because, and that's another nature of the Pantry fight, is it was very experiential in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like for some dudes, it's the one big battle you know, or the one big operation. And that's kind of like that catalytic moment. But for us, it was, you know, it was emblematic of the experience that you dwell in the experience itself and not so much in your, um, one moment because those moments were scattered and those moments were, were a constant grind. So it was experiential, I think. Um, maybe that sets it apart. Maybe not. I don't know. We didn't. We didn't deploy again to some
1: other place, so I can't really say. Right. You know, it's when when we think about the experience of being in Panjway, um, it inevitably comes with, co- always comes back to, you know, the people of Af- of of, of, and of and of Afghanistan, mm. um, because it it's so much shaped our experience. You know, we didn't just go around walking around in these grape rows in a vacuum. You know, there okay. were, they, we, we were in people's backyards, we were in their farmyards, we were in their, their homes and their villages. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about in the last episode with, uh, with Sarah that, you know, I never felt a connection to the Afghan people just because of, I was an infantryman. I was told to pull security. But that, that doesn't mean that I wasn't very aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we went through this process, becoming even more aware of it. You know, as we get messages and emails, especially towards the fall of Afghanistan, of what was going on, um, you know, I, th- I think it started to, right at that 10-year mark, especially appropriate, give me a better appreciation for what they had to go through.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've said it before on the podcast, but, you know, I'll say it again. That's kind of my final thoughts on the people of Afghanistan is my mind always goes to the girls. Um, because, you know, those, those girls are destined to live a life of servitude and nothing more. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be afforded the opportunity to, to do anything more than what they're being forced into by, uh, by the culture and circumstance into which they're born. Um, so talking to Sarah, especially, it was, it was really, really nice to see an example of an Afghan girl who's obviously gone well well into modernity <laughs> yeah. and uh, and done very well for herself and succeeded um and that was always the thing that stuck with me about the people of Pandway is like these girls like if whatever we did there whether it changed their lives or or not even if it didn't change their life there was a girl in Kabul who was getting to go to school or a girl in Kandahar who maybe got a, a taste of what it was like to make a decision for herself and so th- those are the people that bear the brunt of it all and while you know the girls in that immediate area were probably suffering like they always have and unfortunately will always continue to somewhere else a girl was able to to be a person first and property you know not be just be property
1: you know and 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 i give credit to to some of the NATO commanders and recognizing that the people were the key terrain of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think, I think to some extent, general Abrams understood that, um, you know, he, he talked about the, uh, the district governor of Kandahar being a a dual Canadian Afghan citizen and being completely out of touch, Mm -hmm. um, with the, the culture and norms and that it was general Abrams that had to insist that his Western daughter, you know, Dress modestly when going to visit these, you know, village elders, like the fact that he had to do that um, for over someone who's a dual afghan citizen, like what that, that that story continues to blow my mind, like how the district governor of Kandahar could have been so out of touch mm-hmm. um so i'll give I'll give some credit where credits due that they understood the people were the key terrain. But I think that the that NATO forces, american military. Mainly the State Department because I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw the fiasco of Afghanistan at their feet every chance I get. Hmm. Um, they misunderstood the people of Afghanistan and what it took to to really stabilize Afghanistan and give it a chance. Um, which kind of leads into this inevitable conversation: what would we what would we have done differently hmm. um, if it were if we're up to us us knowing what we know now with our hundreds of hours of interviews with people in in Panjway, with our interactions with you know, local Pashtuns that live there. You know, I've got a list, but I'd be curious to hear what what your thoughts are. Uh, what I would have done differently. I mean, on what level? Personally? The highest levels, the highest All level of them. possible. Yeah. I, mean, to, yeah, I to, think to to, uh, to make it to win the war. Yeah,
2: I would say committing and understanding that it's going to take generations, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know that's a physical. Is it a monetary or a a uh, physical price that the u.s government or people weren't willing to pay i think in a lot of ways the afghan war was not going to be won in 20 years and it probably wasn't going to be won in 40 years we probably would have started to see a lot of good in 60 years and we mm-hmm. probably could have turned it into what it we wanted it to be in 100 years and i feel like for me it was just committing to it and the thing about it is is we proved in the last few years of the war that the commitment it didn't need to be huge. Mm-hmm. It just needed to be enough. Right. And the complete unwillingness to commit, even just some to help it maintain, was kinda sad to see because that's what it would have taken is commitment. We made our we made our bed, but we didn't want to sleep in it. It's basically what happened there. Um but with ten thousand troops on the ground and some air assets it goes a long way in Afghanistan
1: in two thousand and eighteen and nineteen, you know? Yes. The, uh, my list is long, um, and it really focuses on the fact that we misunderstood how to let Afghanistan fight for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, any chance, I'm throwing it at the State Department's feet. The United States State Department is so focused on the American version of democracy, mm. they have blinders on to anything else that w- will work. Even if American democracy can never work, American democracy cannot work in Afghanistan. It does; it, it's not possible. Afghanistan is not a melting pot. It can't work. But the State Department's mandate is to you know American democracy abroad. That's that's their thing. Um, and honestly, I Stu, I know you work for the State Department, but they suck at it. <laughs> um, and Afghanistan is completely their fault, and Iraq was their fault too. But that's a completely other topic. Mm-hmm. You know, w- one thing that stands out to me is that that's the idea of a central government was a bad idea to begin with. Mm-hmm. It never mm-hmm. should have been. Afghanistan is not something that could be centrally controlled. The Pashtos don't want to work with the Uzbeks and the Tajiks and the Panjiris. You know, they, they all have their own priorities, even down to the village level, different priorities than they might mm-hmm. have from a village over them. You know, there's a different system for that. And I'm not going to pretend to know what it is, but I know it's not a centralized American democracy. Um, So that's the political side. As far as the military side, I think we made a few mistakes. Um, One was, you know, how we used SF later in in the war. You know, the way we used SF initially, brilliant. Embedding them with Mujahideen fighters and local warlords you know, using ODAs as basically these hubs in a network that we allowed us to take over this country in a very short period of time mm-hmm. over a superior force. It's a textbook.
2: Didn't, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan was like literally the textbook use of SF.
1: Absolutely. It was brilliant. And why? Because SF excels in those areas. Mm-hmm. You know, they are, you know, they're, they're peace core with guns, right? They speak the language, they learn the customs, they're small teams so that the, the, likelihood of big mistakes is a lot less. They're independent thinkers. They're highly trained. That's who needs to be working with the Afghan people, not American infantry. Like The idea of having NATO conventional infantry embed with Afghan army, in my opinion, was a bad idea. It never should happen unless it was specially trained advisors like the SFAB mm-hmm. or special forces ODAs. Those are the only ones that should have been embedded with um Afghan army or, or police because they're the best chance of not doing something stupid and making a cultural gaffe that creates a rift that results in a green on blue or something like that. Um, another was the regional alignment. You know, if you are Afghan army or police and you are in a Pashto stronghold, you should be Pashto. Mm-hmm. I don't care if every Pashto soldier in Afghanistan is in that one district... You know, there should never have been Uzbek or Tajik soldiers crawling around Panjway. Period. Mm-hmm. It was it was a recipe for disaster. Um, you know, I get it, there's they don't have a whole lot of pashto in the A A. That's fine. They need to prioritize assigning all of them to Kandahar and Helmand. Mm-hmm. Um let's see my next list. Uh so when I was in Korea they had a a program called the Katushas. I think it's some saying that right. Katusa, yeah, Katusa. So in the South Korean, has a program called the KATUSA program. So when you join the South Korean military, you can either become a South Korean soldier and part of their regular units, or if you're very smart, if you do really well on all the tests and you're, you, you qualify really all these high qualifications, you can actually be a South Korean soldier in an American unit. Hmm. And that's called the KATUSAs. And, you know, they would be in infantry units fighting alongside the American infantryman, or they'd be in aviation units, they'd be, like, the clerks or something. Like, they would be embedded in American units, and it was considered a high pride to be in these American units. Imagine if we had taken the same approach in Afghanistan. Hmm. If, like, exceptionally skilled, uh, um, you know, Afghan soldiers who knew English could serve in American units. Um. You know, and then they go back to their regular units as a hero and like as a, you know, oh, wow, you got, to, you got to be on the American base. But that should have been the only way that you should have had conventional forces integrated with Afghan forces, hmm. in my opinion. Um, so the VSOs where the SF were, like towards the end of the war, I don't think that ever should have been an SF mission. That hmm. should have been a civil affairs mission. Mm-hmm. Those should have been civil affairs soldiers with conventional infantry at those bases to do that community outreach. Um, I think SF was misused in that role. I think it led to um, SF somewhat, uh, what's the word for it? Like, uh, probably a lack of supervision, which led to them doing things they shouldn't have been doing. You know, Bell and bai is a great example of that. Obviously, it wasn't the SF soldiers that walked off and did it, but a lot of things came out as a result of the investigation of what the SF soldiers were doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it, that probably just because they were bored. It's not mm-hmm. the mission they signed up for. It's not what they want to do. They don't want to sit on a base and go do presence patrols. Um, you know, they signed up for more than that. Uh, and then, you know, one, and one thing I really would have liked to see is the, the, the younger soldiers in well, no matter what unit more exposed to the culture and the people. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Certainly. we were used as security, which is our job, granted, but you know, when you're kinda of, you're always looking over your shoulders, like, wonder what they're talking about. I would love to, you know, have a conversation with that guy, but the interpreter is with the PL talking to the village elder, and I'm never gonna get be a part of that conversation. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that last one is kind of like just like a, a fairy tale. Um but I, I mean, think that- everything else would have gone a long way towards um shaping the fight a little bit differently. Mm. i mean on the
2: on the topic of the, your last point i think that um allowing junior soldiers a, a glimpse in to their workings a little bit more on every level would be beneficial because you know from a tactical uh standpoint it allows them to better understand why you know why are we doing this why do i have to go there and get shot at um and then from that perspective like the cultural standpoint you can only teach pedal drill one alpha on a chalkboard so many times. Like how about you sit down and you have a guy like Matt come in and talk to the entire company, E1 all the way up about the area they're going to, what to expect, what's normal, what not to do to offend people, Mm -hmm. how to better ingratiate yourself with the locals. So that even when you're, you know, an E2 with a saw and you're pulling security and some kid walks up, what can you do to, better solidify your presence as a positive thing in that kid's eyes that would have been beneficial i think in a lot of ways and that's kind of counterintuitive to the infantry's mission to begin with because you know day one of infantry school you show up and the first thing you get pounded into your brain is kill 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 kill. Kill, yeah. kill kill. and uh you know but it wasn't in a lot of ways it wasn't an infantry fight i mean it was the fighting was an infantry fight the presence of our forces there was not an infantry fight. Right. We weren't and, there and, to bomb
1: shit and take over. We were there to maintain the status quo in a lot of ways. And that's another thing that kind of like I was like, "Man, I just I wish we had been turned loose just to fight. You know, I wish yeah. i had been like, "Hey, there's bad guys in the village. Go seize the village, kick them out or kill them and then come home." Yeah. And, but then on the flip side, I'm like, I would really wish we would have better understood and known the people and the culture. And the two aren't exactly compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not really sure what the answer for sure is there. But I I do think us doing joint patrols with the Afghan army was detrimental. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they should have been autonomous U.S. patrols with, you know, the cultural support team or the interpreter. And but, you know, and let us do our missions, but um, let experienced advisors and the SF worry about getting the Afghan army ready. Mm. Um, I, I wish I understood what the, what the balance would be for us to get more of the cultural experience Um, but the good news is I'm just I was PFC Grace and it's not up to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: and that's the thing I gotta catch myself when I start going down this little rabbit hole too it's like but there's a lot of privates out there who don't give a shit yeah you know, a lot of guys that do behind the saw is just there to get it on he don't fucking care about you know connecting with somebody in some mm. far and distant land not that he's not capable of it or not that the majority would not, but, and that's, you know, that's not the infantry's purpose. So yeah, it's not, it almost like if we went and did something like a presence patrol, have like a, have a dedicated team of six people, a civil affairs soldier, a PSYOP, a soldier, two Afghan interpreters and a FET team or something that are dedicated towards cultivating those relationships and let us do the security work. Yes. And then when it comes to like moving to contact or hitting a hard target, leave the Afghans at home and we just roll up and fuck shit up.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's Um, a weird hypothetical wormhole in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a very weird hypothetical wormhole and it's, you know, there's stuff that we still don't know that we don't understand and Mm -hmm. um, we never will. Um, yeah. as their nature of just where we were in the puzzle. But, you know, there, there's definitely things that being on the ground, being a grunt, seeing things as they're actually happening, not as they're being briefed or reported. Mm. You're just like, man, that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's anything we could have done to make the Afghan army more ready for when we left. We They never were have. going to be. Yeah. You know? We
2: definitely couldn't have, like, in terms of just your average gentleman. There's nothing that that guy nothing. could have done to make it
1: better. And, and I, I can't say that at any point during our nine months on Sprowengar I saw any progress. No. with I, In fact, I saw the opposite. I saw them get less of initiative, less willing to go out, less motivated, less capable, less competent, um, because they were scared. <laughs> and they should be. They were getting <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. I think the only time I ever saw them
2: really – uh but really hyper motivated was when they they caught those dudes sleeping and smoked
1: them all. <laughs> <laughs> and when they committed a literal war crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh. I don't think we've told that story on the podcast, but
2: um the one we I story think, we'll think we've alluded out. to it. You we, know yeah. basically the Afghan army split off from us Because they were mad at us. Be, because they were mad at us and they didn't want to continue the patrol there you know there's a problem. And they stumbled across was it five? So, there's a few of them. I don't know how many. There's a few dudes literally napping in an orchard, but they were like sleeping like with their guns. Like they had obviously been out fighting and patrolling themselves. And they basically just butchered the guys. And they this stabbed one them was stabbed him to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember coming back and they were all hopped up and juiced up. And this guy was like miming. Like sticking yeah. one
1: of them. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah,
2: he was like, "It was amazing. I just got
1: to slice this dude's throat open." <laughs> well, that, that's a, that's actually a really good point. The the importance of Afghan justice. Afghan justice. Yeah. Um, and the the very blurry line between Afghan justice and war crimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we place a lot of rules on war, and we should because we're a civilized nation. We have the technology, we have the capability, and responsibility to wage war responsibly and minimize civilian casualties and treat our enemies as the way that we would hope our enemies would treat us. Mm-hmm. Got it. It doesn't work like that in Afghanistan. <laughs> no, much um, strength is strength is power. Mm. Um, so when you have, you know, this is a good time, time to talk about like General Razik, you know, mm. and he, the influence that he carried over Kandahar. It wasn't because he was just a nice, smart guy. He was actually illiterate, we found out, mm. you know, but he was brutal when brutal was called for. Um, and he was a politician when politics was called for, mm-hmm. you know, he was the kind of guy that if you took a confirmed Taliban to his compound and released into his custody, he was never heard from again, mm-hmm. you know, and that was, that was something that the, the SF would threaten their tastes like, Hey, if you don't talk, we're going to take you to Razik mm-hmm. or Razik. And, uh, and then they would talk because they didn't want to go to Razik because no one came back from Razik. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an importance in Afghanistan for that kind of strength, that warlord strength. Um, where it's like, hey, this, you want this guy to be your friend. You don't want him to be your enemy. He can be a wonderful friend, but he's a terrible enemy. <laughs> um, you know, and it's not a coincidence that within a few months of him dying, on the, they finally got the guy after like the 74th you know, assassination attempt, mm-hmm. that the peace in Panjway fell apart. Um... So, like, we talk about these stories of, you know, dropping detainees off at an Afghan base and hearing three gunshots as we drove away, or the literal video of the guy getting, you know, murdered in the middle of Route Brown Mm -hmm. that we have, which the guy did go to jail for it. He probably got let out the back door, but that's besides the point. (laughs) You know, he, you know, shot a Taliban IED emplacer in the back of, in the back (laughs) with his hands bound in the middle of Route Brown. Yeah. Um, You know, stuff like that happened. And, you know, for us, we're like, oh, my God, that's a war crime. But for them, it's like, well, that's, you know, the only real difference between that and like us executing a prisoner is that our standard for evidence is a lot higher than theirs. Mm -hmm. You know, they (laughs) they caught the guy with the IED making materials. That's good enough for them to shoot him. Yeah. You know, for us, we require things like, you know, uh, charges, a trial an appeal, all that kind of stuff for them. That was enough. (laughs) <laughs> so is that does that make that a war crime, or does that just mean it's a different justice system? Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I feel like uh there's kind of a, a glaring misunderstanding in terms of the especially the higher level stuff uh governmentally and even militarily to some degree It's like the our our unwillingness to understand Afghan justice in balance with that long term goal and that long term vision right so like yeah, does the a l p dude dragging the guy into the street and shooting him down because he caught him with HME, is that great? No, it's not great. Ideally we'd not we would not like that to be how justice is handed out. But you know, that that's how it's that's how it's being done. And instead of understanding that and finding the guy like like Razik or Razik? Razik. Razik so finding the guy like Razik who didn't mind if girls went to school. And didn't care if, you know, if a young lady went to Kabul for university. Um, And then every once in a while he would do something a little dirty. Because the thing is, is in 15, 20 years, it doesn't matter because he's going to be dead because of assassination attempts or whatever. So that longevity of vision and balance with the current definition of Afghan justice was definitely not there.
1: And it goes back to they they can't be an American democracy. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work. So we have to find a way for it to work within their culture to mm. get them to a point where they're a modern society that's our ally. That's, yeah. That should be the goal. You know, democracy, not so much. Like, who cares? <laughs> democracy is a pretty inefficient form of government, if we're being completely honest. Mm. Um, especially in a country like Afghanistan, where you have different tribes, and you have different regions, seven different languages, like, my God, mm-hmm. like. You know, I, I'm not going to pretend to know what the answer is. I just know it's not American democracy. Yeah. Um, And there needs to be a little bit of, you know, moral flexibility on what the leaders of that country are going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's going to be some corruption. There's going to be some distasteful things. Like You know, General Abrams said it perfectly. He's like, no one is 100% one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I'm happy if I got somebody that's 90% in our category and I can <laughs> not worry so much about the 10% whether or not. Hmm.
2: I mean, it was a war of misunderstanding in a lot of ways. I mean, considering how well it started off, it's a, it's a shame that it became what it was because it could have been a success story, I think,
1: in, in a lot of ways, but just a litany well, like of you misunderstandings. Said, we had to stay. Yeah. Um, and that that's a really controversial statement because if you'd asked me a year and a half ago should we should stay, I would like, nah, fuck it, let's just leave.
3: hmm
1: Um not because I don't know. I, I it was like I was like oblivious to what the consequences of that would be. I just like, man, we've just been doing it for too long. But if you look in the context of like Japan, South Korea, Germany, England, like we've been there for seventy years. Yeah. Why what's the problem with having a military two military bases in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. You know, and easing to the fact where we just do training missions there. You mm-hmm. know, the Afghans can deal with their own stuff. Um, yeah, it's you know, you're you're right. I mean, you had to have you had to commit to twenty, forty, sixty years. Eventually, just stop calling it a war. Just called an overseas posting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a deployment anymore. It's a PCS. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you'd work towards that, but. Yeah, we uh, we didn't commit. And that's, you know, for better or worse, the war is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for... Our war is over until we go back. <laughs> I don't know if we will, man. I don't know. Not, man, it would take a... Uh, well, let's take it back. We're not going to send conventional forces back to occupy ground in Afghanistan mm-hmm. in, in the next 20 years, I wouldn't guess. Um, I'm sure we've been back. <laughs> sure. some of Zach's friends have paid a couple visits already but um, you know, there's there's stuff that I'm sure that was left behind that shouldn't have been and that kind of thing but um, you know as we kind of you know we've talked about what we experienced about the podcast about the information that we learned along the way what we would have done differently Um, you know what do you see as the future for Panjway hmm
2: I mean, unfortunately, there is no future for Panjway in a lot of ways. It'll be under the thumb of Taliban control and, you know, everything that we went there to try and do is kind of for a, a moot point in a lot of ways. Um, and it'll always be their, their birth, you know, their birth ground or their home ground. So I feel like they're never going to let Panjway be one of the last places or one of the first places that that goes towards a particular kind of any other kind of enemy they might have or develops past what they're going to let it become. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably pretty dark in a lot of ways and
1: that's okay. I mean, you know, we we tried our best. (laughs) Right. You know, when when I think about it, I think basically there's like kind of two tiers to what happens to Panjway in the future. First is that while Taliban is in command, of Afghanistan or is the primary contender for leadership in Afghanistan. Mm. No one's going to go to to Panjway to fight them. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they'll fight over Kabul, they'll fight over Ghazni and Gardez and Tarin and Herat. You know, some of these places where they might possibly win the civilian population and 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 kick them out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not going to go to Panjway. There's no there's no point. It's not strategic for the, as far as the country goes for an internal war. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, that's the phase one. The phase two is that at some point the Taliban will no longer be the the governing body of Afghanistan. I don't know when that's going to be, but it's going to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And when that happens, then basically, ta- you know, Panjway is where they're going to go to lick their wounds. Mm-hmm. And that's where, and then, and Panjway is just kind of going to become southeastern Kentucky. <laughs> you know, it's going to be this place where people live that refuse to to join the larger society. That's where it's like you know the South. After after the Civil War, mm. you know the Confederate soldiers and all that stuff, they went back to the South and they were they stayed entrenched in their ways and you know, fought progr- uh, you know, progressive change for decades. Um, mm. You know, and that's just kind of where they're going to go to lick their wounds. Um, and progress is going to be slow in mm-hmm. Um You know, I think even if the Taliban was overthrown this year by the NRF, it'd still be ten years. Before Panjway was ever somewhere that, um, made a positive progression towards being a a modern, you know, society, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously is super fucking bleak, um, you know, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm wearing our shirt says it was not a waste, and I don't want people to watch this and think like, oh, great, well, it's just gonna be fucking backwards, and you know, Taliban filled for you know twenty, thirty years. What the fuck was the point of going and losing my leg or watching my buddy get killed? Um, because, you know, there's this wonderful thing about places, no matter what place it is in the world, you can fucking leave. Um, so if there is progress being made in other parts of the countries because of the, of the work that we did for 20 years, and people that were in Panjway remember it, and they leave Panjway and they go to Kabul, or they go to Peshawar, or they go to Herat, or they go to anywhere, mm. and they leave, you know, Eventually, those people, they get education and they come back. You know, that what we did is the key to these people educating themselves, modernizing themselves, and saving their country. Will Panjway itself be saved? Maybe not. Mm. Maybe it will. Maybe we'll be surprised. But I refuse to believe that our time was wasted there. Um, I think that we made an impression on the people there, you know, positive or negative. Make your pick. Um, That's going to affect the future of that area, Uh, and it's too soon to say what that effect is.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's something I thought about too. Is like, if if everything that we did there, uh, and by we I mean like NATO forces did there, allowed just a handful of the people to get a glimpse of what life is like outside of Panjway, then you know that's it wasn't a waste. You know, if there's if there's a one person that comes out of that place and does something good for the benefit of the people around them because of the, our presence there, then that's, you know, that's, that's what it has to be. Right. Because anything else wise is, is defeat and, uh, and
1: giving up. And, you know, we refuse to do that. So. And if you were to summarize briefly what your time in Panjoy meant to you, how would, how would you, how would you describe that? That's kind of an impossible question. Um, it's still asking. <laughs> well, it's 50 episodes <laughs> to
2: to get the summary, the brief summary. Right. Um, I think for me, it, it was the largely positive impact that it can have on my day-to-day life. And that's something that I've, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. But there's so much positive that can come out of that experience, uh, that can help me in my day to day. That that's something I want to focus on, you know? Um it was a formative experience in that it completely changed my mind, I think for the better. Um, I didn't fully realize that until doing this process, how it had changed my mind. Um, and it was a foundational experience in that like there was before Panjway and there was after Panjway, you know, before Panjway, I was a particular kind of person and after Panjway, I was a particular kind of person. And that after Panjway, Luke is a, is a better dude in a lot of ways. And he's a, he's a more solid guy in a lot of ways because you know, one of the greatest gifts of going to war is being pushed to the extreme edge of your mortality. And to be able to come back from that extreme edge with your mind intact is a wonderful gift. Because there's so many things in life that while stressful and while annoying or whatever it may be, that it's okay. You know, it's okay. Because you're not going to walk up there and get your shit blown up or get shot, you know, or you're not going to have to sweat four gallons of water (laughs) like it's it's all right it's not that big of a deal to take care of this mundane thing in your day-to-day life because you have that measure by which you can compare it to um so in that regard it's it was it's a very useful experience and that no matter what i do nothing will be as hard as that nine months there um and while everything has a different kind of way it affects us nothing will be as hard as just that grind um, and I'm glad that I have that because it's giving me that strong foundation to to build on and to pursue the next thing.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say I agree with you. Um, as it kind of setting the baseline for what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked in the past about why why do men sign up and now women sign up for combat arms? Why do they choose the infantry? Why do they choose special forces? Why do they choose to fly an Apache helicopter? Um, you know, one thing we came to was that at some point, a young man wants to test himself. Yeah. He wants to know what he's capable of. He wants to know how he'll react. Mm. Um, you know, I was curious. I mean, I chose a combat MOS because I wanted to know what it was like, how, but not so much like what it was like. I could envision being shot at, like that wasn't a hard thing to, you know, picture, mm. but how would I respond to it? I had no idea. Mm. And now I know. Um, so for me, what Panjoy meant to me, it was, it was the definition of what I'm capable of as a man. Hmm. Um, the types of emotions that I can process, the type of experiences that I can compartmentalize or I can deal with, the physical feats that I'm capable of, um, the moral ambiguity that I can work through when it involves the lives of other people. Um, you know, my ability to think quickly and adapt to situations. The all of these things are things that I've learned in combat. Hmm. Um, most of them on that 2012 deployment just Panjoy. Some of them came later, you know, in 2017, but um mainly because just had more responsibilities then, so you learn different lessons. But you know, for me, what Panjoy meant was essentially the framing of my character as as a man. Um
3: and just, you know,
1: that's that's shaped me going forward. And it changed me. Um, certainly as as I think it changes everybody. I used to be a very patient person, a very soft spoken person, um, not much of a risk taker, and I'm still really not much of a risk taker, but um I'm more inclined to when the occasion calls for it now. Um, but you know, I think it's like you said, it's formative. Um, and it's, yeah, I think that, that would be how I describe what it means to me. Yeah. And you know, it,
2: and it should, because you know, something that I've, <laughs> we talked about this a little bit the other day, uh, outside of the podcast, but sometimes I'll have these moments where I'll realize how exceptional it was because we've gotten we've normalized it by talking about it for yes. 52 episodes uh or but previously starting the podcast i suppressed it for 10 years but sometimes i'll have that weird little like semi out of body experience where i realize like that was an exceptional circumstance like yes. waving down a helicopter pjs and loading your buddy who's missing a leg up because he stepped on a bomb is not a normal thing and so to kind of learn to value the, the exceptional nature of it has been, been very good, very, very um, productive and lucrative in that regard, because, you know, it it was an exceptional time. And and then there's a reason that people, unfortunately let themselves become so inherently wrapped up into those experiences because of the exceptional nature of it. So, you know, finding that balance between letting it be, like you said, that foundation, and not letting it be the only thing is is a is a, a good balance to find. And when you do,
1: it's gonna reap very, very many beneficial things in your life. I think a great way to the when you said that, what came to our mind is what you experienced was unique, mm-hmm. but you are not special mm-hmm. um, for having experienced it. You have a unique experience and you have seen things in other scenes, you've experienced things that other people haven't experienced. um, But you and of yourself aren't special because of it. You just have a different skill set, a different experience set than the person next to you. You know, especially as you go on in your life, you're going to meet exceptional people. You're going to meet people that have won, you know, awards for poetry or can speak seven languages or, You know, lived in Aruba for nine years, or have these really unique experiences, and you have a unique experience too. Just don't think that it's any better than anybody else's. It's place it, you know, in its context Mm. um, where it belongs. I think that's a really great way to look at it. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think you know, to those listening and watching, value your combat experience. It makes it gives you something somebody else doesn't have. (laughs) It it makes you unique. Mm. Not special um yeah, definitely, definitely embrace that um you know, as we you know start to come full circle here, my next question for you, Luke, is, what has the podcast meant to you um as a host and as you know a veteran? I feel like the
2: the greatest gift of doing this podcast has been me coming to a better understanding of what that experience did to me and how it impacted me um, for better and for worse. It's just, I feel like I was I was so determined to not be the veteran. You know, i talked about it before, but many times I would go entire semesters and classmates had no idea that I was even in the military because I didn't want that to be a part of my identity. Um, but the podcast for me has been, this process of kind of like reconnecting with with not only the memories and the experience of panjway but just like that part of myself that will always be there no matter how much maybe 6 or 7 years ago i didn't want it to be there which is like you know this is a word i, I, I hate to use this word because our society has bastardized it but to be to connect with that warrior that is always a part of who i am And to, instead of letting that fester and become a wound, I'm able to allow that to be a solid, integral part of my being. And the podcast has facilitated me connecting with that warrior that is in in my makeup. And instead, instead of trying to ignore it, I can lean into it and accept it and find the many benefits that come from letting that be a part of your personhood. Um, so it has been rewarding in that regard. Uh, and it's, it's also on a personal level, it's helped me to understand how I was mishandling a lot of the negative experiences and memories. Um, I feel like I suppressed everything for so long that I'm having to, I'm having to rake over some, some hard memories. Um, and the podcast opened the door for a path of healing for me in that regard. Um. You know, the refusal to align myself with things like PTSD and things like that um, has that refusal and that 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 kind of contrariness has been dismantled by the podcast because it's opened my eyes to some ways that that experience is affecting me uh, in potentially negative ways. And now I feel like I'm getting ahead of the, you know, I'm getting ahead of the curve and that I'm wanting to alleviate those negative things and become better because of it. So the podcast has helped me out in that regard a lot. Um, and so I think those two fronts are where it's really, really changed a lot for me. Um, the person I am now versus the person I am 18 months ago when we started this thing is different. And a lot of that is owed to the podcast and I'm
1: thankful for that. So how about you? So I, I think like you there, there's a couple, aspects one is you know on the kind of on a superficial layer understanding the experience for what it was you know prior to the podcast i wasn't quite as to the extreme as you it was like hey it's a thing that happened i went through it it sucked it was pretty tough but others had it way worse and it's really not worth going into um and talking to all these guests people who served in different eras different areas um, it really kind of helped f- for me understand that it was an exceptional experience it was not normal mm. it was not normal for combat it was a, a truly unique combat experience on the level of Korangal, Helmand, Sadr City, um, Ramadi you know these very unique moments in the war on terror um, you know combat in Panjoy in 2012 was right there um In terms of it being extraordinary, um that doesn't make it better or worse than any of those it's just it just stands out mm. it's not a typical combat deployment um that was one thing that i didn't I didn't give any credence to because I didn't think that that kind of thinking was healthy to want to like rank your experience mm. um but it's one thing that came I was like, hey, if you served in Panjway, like you deserve a pat on the back because um it was exceptional, and it was harder than other places um and you know it's a shame that more people haven't told their stories from Panjoy because it's kind of the um the un- the untold story of the war on terror, yeah. which is ironic because the people we were fighting are from there, you know it'd be like fighting a, a war against the people of America and neglecting to mention washington d c or something <laughs> um That's one thing. The other thing was, um, you know, letting go. Uh, and that was something that I had, I've had to deal with in the past when I had to stop flying, um, letting go of, of flying. And for this process, letting go of my emotions that were attached to combat and Panjui, um, Yeah, we joked about how like the first ten episodes we were like getting super emotional, and doing an interview was like a emotionally taxing experience. Like when we would finish the first, probably in the first season, every episode be like, "Dude, I need a beer," Mm. um, and I've already had three, (laughs) um, you know. And as it went on, it became more procedural. Like I could talk about these things and these incredibly emotional and traumatic experiences without getting emotionally worked up because I had worked through it. Mm. You know, the podcast has turned in, turned out to be a hundred hour therapy session. Mm. Um, so that's been super, super rewarding. Um, the effect that it's had on other people, mm. um, the messages that we receive, the comments that we receive, the people that reach out and email us and tell us how much it means to them. To have part of their story told, even if we don't even tell them their story, the fact that we're talking about Panjway in a medium that more than just Panjway veterans can access, so that their families can understand, and that it's up there forever, and that you know someone is finally telling the stories of Panjway, and to see how much it means to people, um, and then also you know how it's been beneficial for, um the guys that were there and the families of those that we lost. So to see how many guys are taking their mental health seriously and going to get help. Um, you know, I won't say names, but there was one guest in particular that was having a very tough time and he refused to get help and it was because of his participation in the podcast that kind of put him over the edge and he went and got help. Um, that to me. If that was the only thing that happened on the podcast, the whole thing is worth it. Um, you know, the people of Afghanistan. Um, yeah, We've talked about it a little bit, but as a result of this podcast, we were in a position to help. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't able to help everybody, unfortunately. Uh, and that's... That's something I have to live with. But we, we did help people get out. Um, we were in a position to help some people get out of Afghanistan. Um, and that is something that also, in my opinion, <laughs> justifies the entire project. Um, that we were able to raise $5,500 um, through this community. Mm. I mean, that that's... That's not an insignificant amount of money. You had like Nine Line, which is a huge clothing company doing a fundraiser at the same time we did ours. They raised like $350. We raised $5,500. Like, which means that we didn't raise just $5,500. That was just the profits. It was like $9,000 worth of merchandise sales to generate that profit. Hmm. Which is incredible, and that was that was you guys that was our that was our friends, our family, our followers who not only believed in us and what we were doing as a podcast but they believed they trusted us enough to select a charity that was going to get to the right people to help people who were in need at that time um That response from our community meant a lot to me, and finally, I have to say what meant the most to me about this experience was getting to share it with you um you know, Luke has been my best friend, ten years now. Hmm. Um, you know, he's the one guy I've stayed in touch from our company from the moment, even though he didn't want it at first. Um, you know, him, him, his best friend by, uh, um, by just forcing him to apparently, but, um, to be able to go down this journey as business partners, as co-hosts, as co-founders, to work together. Um, and to create this really beautiful project together, um, has been a, a fantastic journey and friendship. Um, and I'm thankful for it. Me too, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, eternally
2: thankful for your friendship. Um, and the, the journey that we've gotten to do this together, like there's no, there's no other person on Spare One Card that I would have done this with. <laughs> and, uh, and credit where credit is due. I often joke that I'm not the co-founder, I'm the one eighth co-founder of the uh, pantry podcast cuz Curtis is Curtis is the the fuel that drives this thing. I just show up and get all the glory. Um so, you know, people listening, like Curtis edits, he does the social media stuff. He he's very much the the guts of uh how this how successful this has been in everything when it came to um getting people out of Afghanistan was on Curtis's shoulder. I just, I was the emotional support. <laughs> so yeah, man, it's, I've, I've been, it's been really awesome to do it with you as well, because we've solidified our friendship. We were, I mean, it's funny. Cause I was talking with Leah with this a while back and do some recent stuff that you and I have been together as well, been through together as well. She was like, you guys have like, she's like, not only are you just good friends and best friends, she's like, you guys have been through not just shit together, but you've been through real shit together. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like and and people throw it around a lot, but for us to have gone through so much shit together um, has been, and then to be able to produce something like this as a joint effort has been awesome, man. And I uh, I agree. I think that doing it with you was a a great reward Um, and it's, it's taken what was already, a really exceptional friendship and solidified it into even an even better friendship. Uh, so that's been awesome. Yeah. I I appreciate
1: that, man. Yeah. You know, kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to do to us what we do to all of our guests. Um, as we close out this episode and as we close out the project, Hmm. um, and, give you the floor to say whatever it is that you want to say. I mean, we kind of have already done that, but Mm. you know, this is it. This is, this is the final words of the Panjoy podcast. Luke, Mm. the floor is yours. (laughs) Um, I think the
2: first place that my mind goes to is just be better, you know, be a better veteran. We can, we can all do it. I'm guilty of it. We all are guilty of it, but we can we can use those experiences to we can we have two choices we can either dwell in the misery and the pain and allow that to dominate our lives or even dwell in the, in the hero, the self-hero worship and allow that to dominate our lives or we can move on and be better because of and not in spite of the experiences that places like Panjway uh give us in our lives so it's a challenge for myself too. like be be better by it and be better because of it um and so yeah i think my 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 final words would be if you are a veteran of pandway um recognize internalize value and then be better because of the experiences that you had the floor is now
1: yours, Curtis. <laughs> All right. The, uh, the final word. Um, I'd be remiss not to bring it back to the Afghan people to start. Mm. Um, we have told, you know, 52 episodes worth of stories and anecdotes and thoughts and opinions. But uh, when the door shuts on my way out of the studio today, um, you know, there's still 38 million people living in Afghanistan that have to deal with. The aftermath of this war mm. um and we shouldn't forget them uh, i know i won't you know the ones that i still haven't gotten out i'm still going to try to get them out um when the, when those opportunities arise but we shouldn't be so arrogant to believe that because the war is over that afghanistan is over mm. uh it's not um so that's that's one thing. Remember that there are still people there. There are people here that have been displaced here um as a result of the fall of Afghanistan. Uh and I challenge everyone to help them whenever you get the opportunity to. Um you know without going political, I just think that it's it's our responsibility. We we created a situation that required these people to leave their homes. Mm-hmm. Um and I, we we bear a responsibility to to help them succeed. Um, so that's, that's one. Second, I want to echo what you were saying. Be better. Um, you know, tell your stories. If you, you know, we didn't get to tell it, tell it somehow else, find a way to tell your story, write a book, do your own podcast. You know, maybe if it's just an episode, um, you know, just record your story for yourself, put it on a shelf. I don't care what you do. Um, but if you feel you need to tell it, talk to somebody, tell your story. Um, you know and 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 do it in such a way that enhances the experience instead of you know don't be a braggart and don't go listen down your o r b of all the awards that you got, nobody cares. be better, tell your story and i i guess the the final thing that I want to leave with is that we didn't all come home sure. um and I wanted to take a moment to just throw out some names and stories. Or, not stories, but anecdotes of some of the men that we lost. You know, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can keep those stories alive. From our deployment, we had, you know, Master of Arms 2 Sean Brazes. So, on his first combat deployment with his dog, Sicario, super happy to be there, you know, going on this big clearing operation. Um, he was killed in action on May 30th, uh, 2012. Um, Corporal Bryant J. Luxmore, who was killed by small arms fire on June 10th, 2012, while leading his dismounted patrol. Um, specialist Trevor Pinnock, who was killed on June 12th, 2012, when he stepped on a improvised explosive device that was a trap designed specifically for... EOD or engineer personnel trying to exploit a fake IED in a tree. He did this in front of one of our patrols to keep them safe. In the same explosion wounded was Sergeant Joseph Lilly who succumbed to his wounds on June 14th, 2012. On September 20th, 2012, we lost uh, Jason Swindle to an RPG attack um he was in an MATV uh the Taliban launched in an RPG that hit the broadside of that MATV penetrated the armor and killed him instantly um but they live on in our memories they live on in the memories of those who served with them uh and the memories of their families uh and this project is dedicated to them this is this is their legacy those who served and did not return from Panjway. In fact, I'll dedicate it to them and the Afghan people. Um mm-hmm. because the rest of us get to live our lives and to do something else. Um but the people of Afghanistan and those who whose lives ended there are you know that some their their life is bookmarked in some way um by Panjway. Um and I and I would leave you guys with this as Luke said, be better. Live your lives as an exceptional human being. Like constantly try and be better because of the guys and women who, were, who are unable to do so because they gave their lives.
3: Absolutely.
2: And uh, with that I think is the fitting in to the Panjoi podcast.
1: Yeah. Maybe we'll see you around. Maybe we won't. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Cheers.
0: Female can sunrises That old heaven root bow, Childhood of tree climbing Stories of Vietnam Bless your feet in the soul grass Whistling swamp pop gold Catching fish watch the birds pass Taught me all that I know All that I can hope is You take me with you when you go I I should have known I can't leave with you when you go I miss the melody of your cackling laughter from your chest when I hurt myself. Gossip across the cane when you disagree. But hearing those words were like hymns to me. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. yes i should have known i can't leave with you when you go now Island is awfully quiet with your screen door staying closed and if i i praying for your oh Take me with you when you go I said I'm praying for you, oh Take me with you when you go I said I'm praying for your oh Take me with you when you go I said I'm praying for you, oh Take me with you when you go I said I'm praying for your